Chapter 3, Part B of The Wealth of Nations, Book 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Book 5, Chapter 3, Part B of Public Debts. In Great Britain, from the time that we had first recourse to the ruinous expedient of perpetual funding, the reduction of the public debt, in time of peace, has never borne any proportion to its accumulation in time of war. It was in the war which began in 1668, and was concluded by the Treaty of Ryswick in 1697, that the foundation of the present enormous debt of Great Britain was first laid. On the 31st of December, 1697, the public debts of Great Britain, funded and unfunded, amounted to £21,515,742.13.5. A great part of those debts had been contracted upon short anticipations, and some part upon annuities for lives, so that, before the 31st of December, 1701, in less than four years, there had partly been paid off, and partly reverted to the public, the sum of five million one hundred twenty-one thousand and forty-one pounds, twelve shillings, and three-quarter pence, a greater reduction of the public debt than has ever since been brought about in so short a period of time. The remaining debt, therefore, amounted only to sixteen million three hundred ninety-four thousand seven hundred and one pounds, one shilling, seven and a quarter pence. In the war which began in 1702 and was concluded by the Treaty of Utrecht, the public debts were still more accumulated. On the 31st of December 1714, they amounted to £53,681,076, five shillings, six and a half pence. The subscription into the South Sea Fund, of the short and long annuities, increased the capital of the public debt so that, on the 31st of December, 1722, it amounted to £55,282,978.1.3.56. The reduction of the debt began in 1723, and went on so slowly that, on the 31st of December, 1739, during seventeen years of profound peace, the whole sum paid off was no more than eight million three hundred twenty-eight thousand five hundred and fifty-four pounds seventeen shillings eleven and three twelfths pence the capital of the public debt at that time amounting to forty-six million nine hundred and fifty-four thousand six hundred and twenty-three pounds three shillings four and seven twelfths pence the Spanish War, which began in 1739, and the French War, which soon followed it, occasioned a further increase of the debt, which, on the 31st of December 1748, after the war had been concluded by the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle, amounted to £78,293,313, one shilling, ten and three-quarter pence. The most profound peace of seventeen years' continuance had taken no more than eight million three hundred twenty-eight thousand three hundred and fifty-four pounds seventeen shillings eleven and a quarter pence from it. A war of less than nine years' continuance added thirty-one million three hundred and thirty-eight thousand six hundred and eighty-nine pounds eighteen shillings six and one-sixth pence to it. During the administration of Mr. Pelham, the interest of the public debt was reduced, or at least measures were taken for reducing it, from 4 to 3 percent. The sinking fund was increased, and some part of the public debt was paid off. In 1755, before the breaking out of the late war, 
the funded debt of Great Britain amounted to £72,289,675. On the 5th of January, 1763, at the conclusion of the peace, the funded debt amounted to £122,603,336.08 shillings two and a quarter pence. The unfunded debt has been stated at £13,927,589, two shillings two pence. But the expense occasioned by the war did not end with the conclusion of the peace, so that, though on the 5th of January, 1764, the funded debt was increased, partly by a new loan and partly by funding a part of the unfunded debt, to £129,586,789, 10 shillings, 1 and 3 quarter pence. There still remained, according to the very well-informed author of Considerations on the Trade and Finances of Great Britain, an unfunded debt, which was brought to account in that and the following year of nine million nine hundred and seventy five thousand seventeen pounds twelve shillings two and fifteen forty fourths pence in seventeen sixty four therefore the public debt of great britain funded and unfunded together amounted according to this author to one hundred and thirty nine million five hundred and sixty one thousand eight hundred and seven pounds two shillings fourpence the annuities for lives, too, which had been granted as premiums to the subscribers to the new loans in 1757, estimated at 14 years' purchase, were valued at £472,500, and the annuities for long terms of years, granted as premiums likewise in 1761 and 1762, estimated at 27 and a half years' purchase, were valued at £6,826,875. During a peace of about seven years' continuance, the prudent and truly patriotic administration of Mr. Pelham was not able to pay off an old debt of six millions. During a war of nearly the same continuance, a new debt of more than seventy-five millions was contracted. On the 5th of January, 1775, the funded debt of Great Britain amounted to £124,996,086, one shilling, six and a quarter pence. The unfunded, exclusive of a large civil list debt, to four million one hundred and fifty thousand two hundred and thirty six pounds three shillings eleven and seven eighths pence, both together to one hundred and twenty nine million one hundred forty six thousand three hundred and twenty two pounds five shillings sixpence. According to this account, the whole debt paid off during eleven years of profound peace amounted only to ten million four hundred and fifteen thousand four hundred and seventy six pounds sixteen shillings nine and seven eighths pence. Even this small reduction of debt, however, has not been all made from the savings out of the ordinary revenue of the state. Several extraneous sums, altogether independent of that ordinary revenue, have contributed towards it. Amongst these we may reckon an additional shilling in the pound land tax, for three years, the two millions received from the East India Company, as indemnification for their territorial acquisitions, and the one hundred and ten thousand pounds received from the bank for the renewal of their charter. To these must be added several other sums, which, as they arose out of the late war, ought perhaps to be considered as deductions from the expenses of it. If we add to this sum the balance of the Earl of Chatham's and Mr. Calcroft's accounts, and other army savings of the same kind, together with what has been received from the bank, the East India Company, and the additional shilling in the pound land tax, the whole must be a good deal more than five millions. 
The debt, therefore, which, since the peace, has been paid out of the savings from the ordinary revenue of the state, has not, one year with another, amounted to half a million a year. The sinking fund has, no doubt, been considerably augmented since the peace, by the debt which had been paid off, by the reduction of the redeemable four percents to three percents, and by the annuities for lives which have fallen in, and, if peace were to continue, a million, perhaps, might now be annually spared out of it towards the discharge of the debt. Another million, accordingly, was paid in the course of last year, but at the same time a large civil list debt was left unpaid, and we are now involved in a new war which, in its progress, may prove as expensive as any of our former wars. The new debt, which will probably be contracted before the end of the next campaign, may, perhaps, be nearly equal to all the old debt which has been paid off from the savings out of the ordinary revenue of the state. It would be altogether chimerical, therefore, to expect that the public debt should ever be completely discharged by any savings which are likely to be made from that ordinary revenue as it stands at present. The public funds of the different indebted nations of Europe, particularly those of England, have, by one author, been represented as the accumulation of a great capital, superadded to the other capital of the country, by means of which its trade is extended, its manufactures are multiplied, and its lands cultivated and improved, much beyond what they could have been by means of that other capital only. He does not consider that the capital which the first creditors of the public advanced to government was, from the moment in which he advanced it, a certain portion of the annual produce, turned away from serving in the function of a capital to serve in that of a revenue, from maintaining productive labors to maintaining unproductive ones, and to be spent and wasted, generally in the course of the year, without even the hope of any future reproduction. In return for the capital which they advanced, they obtained, indeed, an annuity of the public funds, in most cases of more than equal value. This annuity, no doubt, replaced to them their capital and enabled them to carry on their trade and business to the same, or perhaps to a greater extent than before. That is, they were enabled either to borrow of other people a new capital upon the credit of this annuity, or by selling it to get from other people a new capital of their own, equal or superior to that which they had advanced to government. This new capital, however, which they in this manner either bought or borrowed of other people, must have existed in the country before, and must have been employed, as all capitals are, in maintaining productive labor. When it came into the hands of those who had advanced their money to government, though it was in some respects a new capital to them, it was not so to the country, but was only a capital withdrawn from certain employments in order to be turned towards others. Though it replaced to them what they had advanced to government, it did not replace it to the country. Had they not advanced this capital to government, there would have been in the country two capitals, two portions of the annual produce, instead of one, employed in maintaining productive labor. When, for defraying the expense of government, a revenue is raised within the year, from the produce of free or unmortgaged taxes, a certain portion of the revenue of private people is only turned away from maintaining one species of unproductive labor towards maintaining another. Some part of what they pay in those taxes might, no doubt, have been accumulated into capital, and consequently employed in maintaining productive labor, but the greater part would probably have been spent, and consequently employed in maintaining unproductive labor. The public expense, however, when defrayed in this manner, no doubt hinders, more or less, the further accumulation of new capital, 
but it does not necessarily occasion the destruction of any actually existing capital. When the public expense is defrayed by funding, it is defrayed by the annual destruction of some capital which had before existed in the country, by the perversion of some portion of the annual produce which had before been destined for the maintenance of productive labor, towards that of unproductive labor. As in this case, however, the taxes are lighter than they would have been, had a revenue sufficient for defraying the same expense been raised within the year, the private revenue of individuals is necessarily less burdened, and consequently their ability to save and accumulate some part of that revenue into capital is a good deal less impaired. If the method of funding destroys more old capital, it, at the same time, hinders less the accumulation or acquisition of new capital than that of defraying the public expense by a revenue raised within the year. Under the system of funding, the frugality and industry of private people can more easily repair the breaches which the waste and extravagance of government may occasionally make in the general capital of the society. It is only during the continuance of war, however, that the system of funding has this advantage over the other system. Were the expense of war to be defrayed always by a revenue raised within the year, the taxes from which that extraordinary revenue was drawn would last no longer than the war. The ability of private people to accumulate, though less during the war, would have been greater during the peace than under the system of funding. War would not necessarily have occasioned the destruction of any old capitals, and peace would have occasioned the accumulation of many more new. Wars would, in general, be more speedily concluded and less wantonly undertaken. The people feeling, during continuance of war, the complete burden of it, would soon grow weary of it, and government, in order to humor them, would not be under the necessity of carrying it on longer than it was necessary to do so. The foresight of the heavy and unavoidable burdens of war would hinder the people from wantonly calling for it when there was no real or solid interest to fight for. The seasons during which the ability of private people to accumulate was somewhat impaired would occur more rarely and be of shorter continuance. Those, on the contrary, during which that ability was in the highest vigor would be of much longer duration than they can well be under the system of funding. When funding, besides, has made a certain progress, the multiplication of taxes which it brings along with it sometimes impairs as much the ability of private people to accumulate, even in time of peace, as the other system would in time of war. The peace revenue of Great Britain amounts at present to more than ten millions a year. If free and unmortgaged, it might be sufficient, with proper management, and without contracting a shilling of new debt, to carry on the most vigorous war. The private revenue of the inhabitants of Great Britain is at present as much encumbered in time of peace, their ability to accumulate is as much impaired, as it would have been in the time of the most expensive war, had the pernicious system of funding never been adopted. In the payment of the interest of the public debt, it has been said, it is the right hand which pays the left. The money does not go out of the country. It is only a part of the revenue of one set of the inhabitants which is transferred to another, and the nation is not a farthing the poorer. This apology is founded altogether in the sophistry of the mercantile system, and, after the long examination which I have already bestowed upon that system, it may, perhaps, be unnecessary to say anything further about it. It supposes, besides, that the whole public debt is owing to the inhabitants of the country, which happens not to be true. 
the Dutch, as well as several other foreign nations, having a very considerable share in our public funds. But though the whole debt were owing to the inhabitants of the country, it would not, upon that account, be less pernicious. Land and capital stock are the two original sources of all revenue, both private and public. Capital stock pays the wages of productive labor, whether employed in agriculture, manufactures, or commerce. The management of those two original sources of revenue belongs to two different sets of people, the proprietors of land and the owners or employers of capital stock. The proprietor of land is interested, for the sake of his own revenue, to keep his estate in as good condition as he can, by building and repairing his tenants' houses, by making and maintaining the necessary drains and enclosures, and all those other expensive improvements which it properly belongs to the landlord to make and maintain. But, by different land taxes, the revenue of the landlord may be so much diminished, and, by different duties upon the necessaries and conveniencies of life, that diminished revenue may be rendered of so little real value, that he may find himself altogether unable to make or maintain those expensive improvements. When the landlord, however, ceases to do his part, it is altogether impossible that the tenant should continue to do his. As the distress of the landlord increases, the agriculture of the country must necessarily decline. When, by different taxes upon the necessaries and conveniencies of life, the owners and employers of capital stock find that whatever revenue they derive from it will not, in a particular country, purchase the same quantity of those necessaries and conveniencies which an equal revenue would in almost any other, they will be disposed to remove to some other. And when, in order to raise those taxes, all or the greater part of merchants and manufacturers, that is, all or the greater part of the employers of great capitals, come to be continually exposed to the mortifying and vexatious visits of the tax-gatherers, this disposition to remove will soon be changed into an actual removing. The industry of the country will necessarily fall with the removal of the capital which supported it, and the ruin of trade and manufactures will follow the declension of agriculture. To transfer from the owners of those two great sources of revenue, land and capital stock, from the persons immediately interested in the good condition of every particular portion of land, and in the good management of every particular portion of capital stock, to another set of persons, the creditors of the public, who have no such particular interest, the greater part of the revenue arising from either must, in the long run, occasion both the neglect of land and the waste or removal of capital stock. A creditor of the public has, no doubt, a general interest in the prosperity of the agriculture, manufactures, and commerce of the country, and, consequently, in the good condition of its land, and in the good management of its capital stock. Should there be any general failure or declension in any of these things, the produce of the different taxes might no longer be sufficient to pay him the annuity or interest which is due to him. But a creditor of the public, considered merely as such, has no interest in the good condition of any particular portion of land, or in the good management of any particular portion of capital stock. As a creditor of the public, he has no knowledge of any such particular portion. He has no inspection of it. He can have no care about it. Its ruin may in some cases be unknown to him, and cannot directly affect him. The practice of funding has gradually enfeebled every state which has adopted it. The Italian republics seem to have begun it. Genoa and Venice, 
the only two remaining which can pretend to an independent existence, have both been enfeebled by it. Spain seems to have learned the practice from the Italian republics, and, its taxes being probably less judicious than theirs, it has, in proportion to its natural strength, been still more enfeebled. The debts of Spain are of very old standing. It was deeply in debt before the end of the sixteenth century, about a hundred years before England owed a shilling. France, notwithstanding all its natural resources, languishes under an oppressive load of the same kind. The Republic of the United Provinces is as much enfeebled by its debts as either Genoa or Venice. Is it likely that, in Great Britain alone, a practice which has brought either weakness or dissolution into every other country should prove altogether innocent? The system of taxation established in those different countries, it may be said, is inferior to that of England. I believe it is so, but it ought to be remembered that when the wisest government has exhausted all the proper subjects of taxation, it must, in cases of urgent necessity, have recourse to improper ones. The wise Republic of Holland has, upon some occasions, been obliged to have recourse to taxes as inconvenient as the greater part of those of Spain. Another war, began before any considerable liberation of the public revenue had been brought about, and growing in its progress as expensive as the last war, may, from irresistible necessity, render the British system of taxation as oppressive as that of Holland, or even as that of Spain. To the honour of our present system of taxation, indeed, it has hitherto given so little embarrassment to industry, that, during the course even of the most expensive wars, the frugality and good conduct of individuals seem to have been able, by saving and accumulation, to repair all the breaches which the waste and extravagance of government had made in the general capital of the society. At the conclusion of the late war, the most expensive that Great Britain ever waged, her agriculture was as flourishing, her manufactures as numerous and as fully employed, and her commerce as extensive as they had ever been before. The capital, therefore, which supported all those different branches of industry, must have been equal to what it had ever been before. Since the peace, agriculture has been still further improved. The rents of houses have risen in every town and village of the country, a proof of the increasing wealth and revenue of the people, and the annual amount of the greater part of the old taxes, of the principal branches of the excise and customs in particular, has been continually increasing, an equally clear proof of an increasing consumption, and, consequently, of an increasing produce, which could alone support that consumption. Great Britain seems to support with ease a burden which, half a century ago, nobody believed her capable of supporting. Let us not, however, upon this account, rashly conclude that she is capable of supporting any burden, nor even be too confident that she could support, without great distress, a burden a little greater than what has already been laid upon her. When national debts have once been accumulated to a certain degree, there is scarce, I believe, a single instance of their having been fairly and completely paid. The liberation of the public revenue, if it has ever been brought about at all, has always been brought about by a bankruptcy, sometimes by an avowed one, though frequently by a pretended payment. The raising of the denomination of the coin has been the most usual expedient by which a real public bankruptcy has been disguised under the appearance of a pretended payment. If a sixpence, for example, should, either by act of parliament or royal proclamation, be raised to the denomination of a shilling, 
and twenty sixpences to that of a pound sterling, the person who, under the old denomination, had borrowed twenty shillings, or near four ounces of silver, would, under the new, pay with twenty sixpences, or with something less than two ounces. A national debt of a hundred and twenty-eight millions, near the capital of the funded and unfunded debt of Great Britain, might in this manner be paid with about sixty-four millions of our present money. It would, indeed, be a pretended payment only, and the creditors of the public would really be defrauded of ten shillings in the pound of what was due to them. The calamity, too, would extend much further than to the creditors of the public, and those of every private person would suffer a proportionable loss, and this without any advantage, but in most cases with a great additional loss, to the creditors of the public. If the creditors of the public, indeed, were generally much in debt to other people, they might in some measure compensate their loss by paying the creditors in the same coin in which the public had paid them. But in most countries, the creditors of the public are, the greater part of them, wealthy people, who stand more in the relation of creditors than in that of debtors, towards the rest of their fellow citizens. A pretended payment of this kind, therefore, instead of alleviating, aggravates, in most cases, the loss of the creditors of the public, and, without any advantage to the public, extends the calamity to a great number of other innocent people. It occasions a general and most pernicious subversion of the fortunes of private people, enriching in most cases the idle and profuse debtor at the expense of the industrious and frugal creditor, and transporting a great part of the national capital from the hands which were likely to increase and improve it to those who are likely to dissipate and destroy it. When it becomes necessary for a state to declare itself bankrupt, in the same manner as when it becomes necessary for an individual to do so, a fair, open, and avowed bankruptcy is always the measure which is both least dishonorable to the debtor and least hurtful to the creditor. The honor of a state is surely very poorly provided for when, in order to cover the disgrace of a real bankruptcy, it has recourse to a juggling trick of this kind so easily seen through and at the same time so extremely pernicious. Almost all states, however, ancient as well as modern, when reduced to this necessity, have, upon some occasions, played this very juggling trick. The Romans, at the end of the First Punic War, reduced the as, the coin or denomination by which they computed the value of all their other coins, from containing twelve ounces of copper, to contain only two ounces. That is, they raised two ounces of copper to a denomination which had always before expressed the value of twelve ounces. The Republic was, in this manner, enabled to pay the great debts which it had contracted with the sixth part of what it really owed. So sudden and so great a bankruptcy, we would in the present times be apt to imagine, must have occasioned a very violent popular clamor. It does not appear to have occasioned any. The law which enacted it was, like all other laws relating to the coin, introduced and carried through the assembly of the people by a tribune, and was probably a very popular law. In Rome, as in all other ancient republics, the poor people were constantly in debt to the rich and the great, who, in order to secure their votes at the annual elections, used to lend them money at exorbitant interest, which, being never paid, soon accumulated into a sum too great either for the debtor to pay or for anybody else to pay for him. The debtor, for fear of a very severe execution, was obliged, without any further gratuity, to vote for the candidate whom the creditor recommended. 
in spite of all the laws against bribery and corruption the bounty of the candidates together with the occasional distributions of coin which were ordered by the senate were the principal funds from which during the latter times of the roman republic the poorer citizens derived their subsistence to deliver themselves from this subjection to their creditors the poorer citizens were continually calling out either for an entire abolition of debts or for what they called new tables that is for a law which should entitle them to a complete acquittance upon paying only a certain proportion of their accumulated debts the law which reduced the coin of all denominations to a sixth part of its former value as it enabled them to pay their debts with a sixth part of what they really owed was equivalent to the most advantageous new tables in order to satisfy the people the rich and the great were upon several different occasions obliged to consent to laws both for abolishing debts and for introducing new tables and they probably were induced to consent to this law partly for the same reason and partly that by liberating the public revenue they might restore vigor to that government of which they themselves had the principal direction an operation of this kind would at once reduce a debt of one hundred and twenty eight million pounds to twenty one million three hundred and thirty three thousand three hundred and thirty three pounds six shillings eight pence in the course of the second punic war the as was still further reduced first from two ounces of copper to one ounce and afterwards from one ounce to half an ounce that is to the twenty-fourth part of its original value by combining the three roman operations into one a debt of a hundred and twenty-eight millions of our present money might in this manner be reduced all at once to a debt of five million three hundred and thirty-three thousand three hundred and thirty-three pounds six shillings eightpence even the enormous debt of great britain might in this manner soon be paid by means of such expedients the coin of i believe all nations has been gradually reduced more and more below its original value and the same nominal sum has been gradually brought to contain a smaller and a smaller quantity of silver nations have sometimes for the same purpose adulterated the standard of their coin that is have mixed a greater quantity of alloy in it if the pound weight of our silver coin for example instead of eighteen penny weight according to the present standard there were mixed eight ounces of alloy a pound sterling or twenty shillings of such coin would be worth little more than six shillings and eightpence of our present money the quantity of silver contained in six shillings and eightpence of our present money would thus be raised very nearly to the denomination of a pound sterling the adulteration of the standard has exactly the same effect with what the french call an augmentation or a direct raising of the denomination of the coin an augmentation or a direct raising of the denomination of the coin always is and from its nature must be an open and avowed operation by means of it pieces of a smaller weight and bulk are called by the same name which had before been given to pieces of a greater weight and bulk the adulteration of the standard on the contrary has generally been a concealed operation by means of it pieces are issued from the mint of the same denomination and as nearly as could be contrived of the same weight bulk and appearance with pieces which had been current before of much greater value when king john of france in order to pay his debts adulterated his coin all the officers of his mint were sworn to secrecy both operations are unjust but a simple augmentation is an injustice of open violence 
whereas an adulteration is an injustice of treacherous fraud. This latter operation, therefore, as soon as it has been discovered, and it could never be concealed very long, has always excited much greater indignation than the former. The coin, after any considerable augmentation, has very seldom been brought back to its former weight, but after the greatest adulterations it has almost always been brought back to its former fineness. It has scarce ever happened that the fury and indignation of the people could otherwise be appeased. In the end of the reign of Henry the Eighth, and in the beginning of that of Edward the Sixth, the English coin was not only raised in its denomination, but adulterated in its standard. The like frauds were practiced in Scotland during the minority of James the Sixth. They have occasionally been practiced in most other countries. That the public revenue of Great Britain can never be completely liberated, or even that any considerable progress can ever be made towards that liberation, while the surplus of that revenue, or what is over and above defraying the annual expense of the peace establishment, is so very small, it seems altogether in vain to expect. That liberation, it is evident, can never be brought about without either some very considerable augmentation of the public revenue or some equally considerable reduction of the public expense. A more equal land tax, a more equal tax upon the rent of houses, and such alterations in the present system of customs and excise as those which have been mentioned in the foregoing chapter, might, perhaps, without increasing the burden of the greater part of the people, but only distributing the weight of it more equally upon the whole, produce a considerable augmentation of revenue. The most sanguine projector, however, could scarce flatter himself that any augmentation of this kind would be such as could give any reasonable hopes, either of liberating the public revenue altogether, or even of making such progress towards that liberation in time of peace, as either to prevent or to compensate the further accumulation of the public debt in the next war. By extending the British system of taxation to all the different provinces of the empire, inhabited by people either of British or European extraction, a much greater augmentation of revenue might be expected. This, however, could scarce perhaps be done consistently with the principles of the British Constitution without admitting into the British Parliament, or, if you will, into the States General of the British Empire, a fair and equal representation of all those different provinces, that of each province bearing the same proportion to the produce of its taxes as the representation of Great Britain might bear to the produce of the taxes levied upon Great Britain. The private interest of many powerful individuals, the confirmed prejudices of great bodies of people, seem, indeed, at present to oppose to so great a change such obstacles as it may be very difficult, perhaps altogether impossible, to surmount. Without, however, pretending to determine whether such a union be practicable or impracticable, it may not perhaps be improper, in a speculative work of this kind, to consider how far the British system of taxation might be applicable to all the different provinces of the empire, what revenue might be expected from it, if so applied, and in what manner a general union of this kind might be likely to affect the happiness and prosperity of the different provinces comprehended within it. Such a speculation can, at worst, be regarded but as a new utopia, less amusing certainly, but no more useless and chimerical than the old one. The land tax, the stamp duties, and the different duties of customs and excise constitute the four principal branches of the British taxes. Ireland is certainly as able, 
and our American and West India plantations more able to pay a land tax than Great Britain. Where the landlord is subject neither to tithe nor poor's rate, he must certainly be more able to pay such a tax than where he is subject to both those other burdens. The tithe, where there is no modus, and where it is levied in kind, diminishes more what would otherwise be the rent of the landlord than a land tax which really amounted to five shillings in the pound. Such a tithe will be found, in most cases, to amount to more than a fourth part of the real rent of the land, or of what remains after replacing completely the capital of the farmer together with his reasonable profit. If all modices and all impropriations were taken away, the complete church tithe of Great Britain and Ireland could not well be estimated at less than six or seven millions. If there was no tithe either in Great Britain or Ireland, the landlords could afford to pay six or seven millions additional land tax, without being more burdened than a very great part of them are at present. America pays no tithe, and could therefore very well afford to pay a land tax. The lands in America and the West Indies, indeed, are, in general, not tenanted nor leased out to farmers. They could not, therefore, be assessed according to any rent roll. But neither were the lands of Great Britain, in the fourth of William and Mary, assessed according to any rent roll, but according to a very loose and inaccurate estimation. The lands in America might be assessed either in the same manner, or according to an equitable valuation, in consequence of an accurate survey, like that which was lately made in the Milanese and in the dominions of Austria, Prussia, and Sardinia. Stamp duties, it is evident, might be levied without any variation. In all countries where the forms of law process, and the deeds by which property, both real and personal, is transferred, are the same, or nearly the same. End of Book 5, Chapter 3, Part B